Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the albino hills and south of the raging leucistic river, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Hey folks, it's, this is Dave, your host of Gecko Nation Radio, and uh, I just want to welcome you all to another episode tonight, and today is August 31st, 2014. We're going to make history again tonight, and we are going to be talking all about leopard geckos and giant leopard geckos. We have Keith Kiggins from giantleopardgecko.com with us tonight, and uh, I'm also going to be joined by uh, special co-host, uh, Mr. Tim Walton from Slice of the Jungle. Tim, you are live on Gecko Nation Radio. What's going on, Dave? How you doing this week? I'm doing good, man. Really busy here, and uh, you know things are starting to slow down a little bit. My incubators are getting a little emptier, which is good, but it also means that as they empty, I have to build racks. So, um, yeah, it's still crazy here. What am I talking about? <laughs> How many? What's going on with you? How many babies do you think you've hatched this year? Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, probably over, well over 600. This is my wow. biggest year so far. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm definitely going to slow it down, though, for next season. So, uh, you know, it's like I'm still trying to find my, find my happy medium. And in doing so, um, it's been a journey of just a lot of work. <laughs> um definitely at the point now where I can figure out exactly how much I need to produce of what types and where I'm going with certain projects. The next year I'm more prepared and, um, you know, I can basically, I don't know, just keep things organized better and only, you know, breed what I want. I'm kind of like all over the place because I have a problem with him. I, I like all the different <laughs> forms and combos. And <laughs> so I have a little bit of everything when I really should be focusing on the things, you know, that I really, really like and, and produce some good-sized numbers of those. But, you know, I'm still trying to figure it out. So what? Um, so if you're changing gears a little bit for next year, what uh, are you looking to do, like, more of the rare morphs? Are you looking to do more, you know, com- you know first-time combos? Um, um, or are you looking to do some more like kind of mid-range priced animals? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I'm not really a, much for first-time combos. I mean, I, I've never really, I'm not, I haven't been in the game that long where I can actually, you know, basically make first-time combos. There's always people that have beaten me and others to that. So that's not really that important to me. What I what I find most appealing is um, uh, keeping with lines going and um, basically... Refining. Uh, well, not only refining, but also assuring that certain bloodlines will continue to be available and they're uncorrupted. And, like, for instance, I, I really had a lot of respect, and still do, for Paul Allen's work from the Bright Albino, and I had some select... I was fortunate enough to get some select projects of his, and uh, I didn't get a lot of them. So over the last few years, I've had to work with what I've had, and, uh, you know, keep them going. And now today, you know, a lot of his bloodlines have been dispersed all over the place, and I don't, you know, very few people are keeping them 
uh, you know, pure to his work. And uh, so I'm, I'm proud to be able to do stuff like that. So I like the line bright stuff thing. And uh, I'm going to be doing a lot with white and yellows because I think uh, we're just scratching the surface with what white and yellows can do and uh, how they can be refined and selectively bred. Uh, so we're going to see some exciting stuff, I think, in the next few years. Well, but it's never going to end. Well, what a, we're always what about a, um, a, a pastel white and yellow? Yeah, oh, I definitely, I definitely did that pairing this season. So I'm waiting on my female. Was uh, she was a late ovulator, so she's actually probably going to lay her first eggs um, soon. I bred a pastel raptor to a really, really amazing tremper white and yellow. So um, should be, should be interesting to see what comes out. I mean, the gene nice. does definitely, that definitely passes on. Um, there's been some you know, discussions about whether it's line bred or uh, dominant or whatnot. And uh, just from my own experience here, it passes on very strongly. So, you know, maybe it's a strong line bred or perhaps it could be a dominant, like what Ron says. So we'll see. But everybody's have got their you, own opinion have about you seen, that. Have you seen pictures of pastel white and yellows yet? No, I haven't. I'm not sure that anybody has them yet. I, I'm not, I got to look into that. I would like to see. There you go. You, you might be the first. Uh, maybe you never know. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure somebody's done it already. I don't. I can't see me being the first. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure they're going to be really cool looking babies. Definitely. Well, I, I mean, I can't see how they wouldn't be. You're right. They will be cool. We'll see what happens. But uh, what's going on with your work? How are you doing over there? Anything exciting? Um, just, uh, I have a few babies going and, uh, that's exciting enough for me. I, um, <laughs> you know, kind of just doing, doing some test breeding this year and, uh, you know, and it's funny, it's cool, you know, when you kind of just do some test breeding and you get some really cool looking babies that you weren't, you know, that you weren't expecting. Yeah. And just like you say, you want to just different projects with them all, and there are way too many to do that with. <laughs> Even the simple project of two geckos the first season seems innocent enough, but then you have to take into account, at the end of that season, you're going to have maybe 10 babies, and then then you got to, then the next season, you're going to want to work with those 10 babies, and they're going to produce 10 babies each, and it's like, you know, it's, it's quickly exponential growth, and it gets crazy. <laughs> Actually, I I have I owe a big thank you to you, um, for about your show. Um, um, his name is escaping me right now, but um, the the inventor of the geos. What's his name? Oh, Sean Holiday. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. I had just kind of started getting eggs when you did that show, and um, I was actually using some old. Um, coconut fiber and some old uh, nest boxes and sure enough I had some of my first eggs of the season all ended up going bad so after listening to that show I ordered um, some of his products and turned it right around one thing about Sean is that guy has done his homework on incubation and hatching and uh, the whole process. He really has. I mean, folks, if you want to go back and check out that uh, episode, and we're going to have him back on soon because I've been test- testing some of this product here in my own collection. 
Um, but it's like a definitive show all about incubation. So definitely check it out. I think it was about four or five months ago. So definitely. Yeah, no, you're, you're welcome, Tim. I'm glad we did that show. That, that, show, that show actually has helped a lot of people out there. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it will continue because it's one of those shows that just will stand the test of time and endure because the information is so good. But, um, all right, well, we're going to get moving on here. Uh, Tim, hang tight. I want to just uh, go ahead and mention that uh, next weekend is the White Plains show. And, uh, Tim, you're going to be there, right? I will be. Okay, and, of course, I'll be there. And I'm usually, my table is usually right across from where uh, Brian Barczyk is. So if you guys want to stop by and see some of my geckos, I'm going to bring, bring some incredible stuff this season uh, to the show. So definitely stop by, say hello. And also, um, I want to mention that um, uh, the Ellsbury to Dragons, our sponsor, is going to be there, of course, and mention Gecko Nation Radio uh, to any of the Ellsbury to Dragons staff, and uh, you're going to receive a discount on any of their products, and they sell all the reptile supplies at the show. All right, so they're one of the biggest retailers of supplements, supplies, caging, exoterras, anything you guys need, heating, and they're also going to be selling FlexWatt now, too, which is awesome because um, they're going to be getting FlexWatt into all the Northeast shows that they do, which is really cool. And, um, you know, they're also on Amazon with that. So if you guys need FlexWatt, check them out on Amazon. Also, um, I want to remind everybody that if you like Gecko Nation Radio, help us continue to grow uh, by sharing the show links on Facebook, if you would, and the page every once in a while. The show is growing very well, and it's all due to your help. So help us reach more enthusiasts, and this way we can help other people learn about leopard geckos and other species of reptiles. Uh, also, if you guys want to call in tonight with your questions, the call-in number is 646-478-5331. Uh, when you call in, it's going to ask you uh, press 1 to speak to the host. That's your cue that if you want to ask a question, make sure you press 1, and then I'll know because then a little question mark comes up on my screen, and I'll know that you're not just listening. You're actually calling to ask a question live on the air. All right, we might do something special for callers tonight, too. So uh, keep that in mind. All right, folks, I just want to also thank you guys and thank our sponsors. We would not be possible without our amazing sponsors. Here's some of them, and you'll hear the rest at the mid-show break. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by... Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Longhorn Geckos is a father and son collaboration. Daryl and Kate Burton specialize in the best supertangelos, pastel raptors, white and yellows, and really nice wild types. Follow them on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos and on their new website coming soon. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at Expos in the Northeast. 
He is also the owner of GeckoForums.net. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need, from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. All right, folks, and also want to mention that, of course, uh, we are, some of our sponsors have standing discount codes, one being abdragons.com. If you guys need Dewey roaches, use the code GECKO at checkout for 5% off. And, of course, our guest tonight, Keith Kiggins, is giving a discount till September 30th on any geckos that gets 20% off. Uh, use the code GNR2014, and uh, you're, you'll get that discount on any of his awesome geckos. So, um, definitely, that's cool. But, you know, of course, guys, mention Gecko Nation Radio to any of our sponsors, and they'll take care of you. All right? Cool. All right, let's see. What else do I want to tell you about? Oh, one last thing I want to mention. Tim. Where should all the new and existing gecko fanatics go to? Geckoforums.net. That's right. Check this out, folks. Did you know that since 2006, there's been a treasure trove of history and information on leopard geckos and other species? Well, Geckoforums is the most extensive database of leopard gecko history on the web right now. Take a look and delve into the past, present, and future of this great community. The biggest contributors, breeders, and hobbyists have left their mark there. Now it's your turn. Look, learn, and post away. Need a place to post animals for sale? Look no further. Visit geckoforums.net and become a member today. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to be the official radio show associated with Gecko Forums. Herpentime Radio is my inspiration for GNR. Justin and JD do a terrific show every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. Eastern and have an amazing archive of shows available for download. Visit them at blogtalkradio.com slash herpentime and on Facebook. All right. Hey, Tim, what do you say we uh, find out what's going on in the news? Sounds good. Bring Steve on. All right. Good evening, Gekkonians. <laughs> Master Gekkonian news anchor. What's going on, Steve? Hey, how's it going? Forgot good, to good. Adjust, adjust my mic. <laughs> <laughs> we heard you just fine. Oh, cool. <laughs> how's it going? What's going on out there? Good, good. Uh, not, not too much. Uh, the, the stories were kind of scarce this week, and I think that's a good thing, really. Hell yeah. But uh, <laughs> this one comes from Midland, Ontario, and this is kind of funny. 
mysterious ghost haunting family ho- or mis- mysterious ghost haunting family home turns out to be a ten foot python. <laughs> <laughs> For weeks, the Ontario family were starting to think they had a ghost living with them. Turns out, after coming home and sitting down on the couch and finding a python sitting next to them, <laughs> they didn't have a ghost. <laughs> oh my they God. had a... They, they called the police, it was captured, and they, the python could have been in the house for a couple of weeks, which would explain recent strange occurrences, including a lamp getting knocked over and glasses falling to the floor. Could you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Wow. <laughs> Did they figure out where it came from? or? Uh, no, they they have no idea where it came from. And it didn't say what it was, but the pictures they show appear to be a Burmese python. Wow, but that's Ontario, are, Canada? Yeah, I believe they're, they're illegal now, right? In Ontario, I believe. Well, maybe, or you have to have a permit maybe, or something. Maybe the wildlife officials are right, and the Burmese python has made it all the way <laughs> oh, up to no. Ontario. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding, folks. <laughs> It's way too cold. Oh yeah, but yeah, I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't imagine, you know, thinking my house is haunted, and then, <laughs> of course, I Jeez. would welcome them. But yeah, right, exactly. Huh. All right. Yeah, and heading to our next story. This is I, I picked this for a reason, and you'll you'll hear you'll hear it immediately. Ten-foot python named Squeezer on the loose in Sebastian, Florida. (laughs) Residents are closing all doors and windows and and checking every tree. They are looking for the 10-foot, 17-year-old python named Squeezer. And I I emphasize python. He is a 40-pound rare boa constrictor. Worth five to six thousand dollars. Now I can understand if it's a boa constrictor python that it would be worth five to six thousand dollars. <laughs> right. But the snake had escaped, or they assume it escaped. But in the article, odds are Squeezer is either stolen for the black market because obviously, if it's a boa constrictor python, it is worth a lot of money. Oh or God. part of a neighborhood prank. Yeah, I couldn't believe it when I when I saw that. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, I mean, there's no. I mean, first of all, boa constrictors are live bears. Pythons like right. eggs. There's no way <laughs> that these two species could ever create a hybrid on their own. Maybe some genetic splicing could do it somehow. But it, you know, for anybody that doesn't understand what we're talking about, there's no way that could occur. So. Yeah, exactly. This is just a prank or something or a hoax to, you know, create a buzz or whatever. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, really. All <laughs> right, and our last story and our best story coming from Australia. The, mm-hmm. the Jardine River turtle has been sighted for the first time in 20 years. And they managed to capture 
over 24 of these to study, which is amazing. Oh. In, 20, in 20 years, they haven't seen these. And, Interesting. Um, yeah, that, and, and when I post this on the Gecko Nation Radio Facebook page, they are amazing looking. They're, they're kind of like a painted turtle, and there they call them a painted turtle, but they're mm-hmm. like fluorescent orange. I mean, they're beautiful. Post it um, in the chat, too, for the people. All right, I can do that. Um, let's see. Cape York Natural Resource Management, Management Board said 14 turtles were found in one location last week, and another 10 were found in a different location this week. And they're forming a committee to decide how best to manage the species and ensure its survival. The biggest threat to them are feral pigs that are currently, you know, running rampant, I guess, through Australia, unfortunately. But they are placing temporary fencing to stop the pigs from foraging for turtle eggs in the wet season to help help with that. So hopefully they... uh, you know, they can get the population back up. Well, that's encouraging. Uh, we've seen uh, similar um, issues with diamondback terrapins, uh, but they've they've made a big comeback here in the U.S., which is good. Um, yeah. They were almost hunted to extinction for food, and people were eating these turtles. And they're, they're mostly turtles that live in brackish water, like in the bays and stuff along the eastern coast. So uh, it's good. I just heard recently there was a story somewhere about them being um, elevated up the list so they're no longer as uh, endangered as they once were. I don't know the exact classification, though. So nice. it's pretty cool. Yeah. It's always good when when we hear species coming back. That's that's good. Yeah. All right. I well, fu- I'm going to go ahead and fire up the time machine and... Let's go back in time. All right. All right. February 16, 1950. Zoo gets reptile found in bananas. The Toledo Zoo today has a new arrival in its reptile house, an Ecuadorian viper found yesterday in a stalk of bananas in the Kroger Company warehouse Leo Higgins, assistant director of the, the zoo, said the snake is known as a chunk head or night viper and is poisonous and comparatively rare. After striking, it hangs on and chews instead of immediately recoiling as most snakes do after the strike. He said the brown reptile is about 18 inches long. And that was February 16, 1950. Wow. You know, I used to work at ShopRite as a uh, bagger, and I, used, I was friends with one of the guys that worked in the produce department. And he would tell us that they used to get weird animals coming in on fruits and vegetables all the time, like little frogs and lizards and stuff. And I don't, I don't know if he said anything about snakes, but, you know, because these, these guys hang out in the folds of the leaves and stuff. And... They just, you know, they get shipped with the with the produce. So that's that's crazy. Uh-huh. Imagine imagine sorting uh-huh. through produce and getting bit by some kind of very rare, uh, well, not rare, but you know, some kind of species of snake that's not that they don't have anti venom for, you know, because it's like from you know South America or God knows where. 
I mean, yeah, really. That's a possibility. Wow. That could be like a really <laughs> rare possibility. Who knows? But uh, wow, that's interesting. Um, so what's going on yeah. with your with your collection, Steve? I just hatched out a, another clutch of milii, and I nice. didn't realize that I was going through them and I I was comparing the clutches, and I've got mm-hmm. half of them are hypos, really nice looking hypos. Well, that's to be but I, I didn't I, because right yeah. yeah. But when they're when they're when they first hatch out, it's kind of tough to tell. They're they're kind of dark, you know. And then mm-hmm. once they start growing, I you can really tell. I mean, and they're just gorgeous. I'm loving them. <laughs> nice. How many have you got so far? Uh, I think I've hatched out seven so far, and I still have one clutch in the incubator. Wow, you're producing a whole bunch this season, huh? Yeah, That's and so cool. far. I can only tell one is a female. That's that's the first one that hatched out. Its clutch may had didn't make it out of the egg, but that one is a female. I'm happy to see I got a female. So good. Yeah. Wow, you'll have a you'll have a big collection by next season. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Good. Good thing you have your room snakes. in the new house. Oh, good. <laughs> Great. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Uh, I'm pretty much settled in. Nice. What else is going on, Steve, with the snakes and stuff? Um, all my ball python clutches have hatched. I have horrible odds this year on them, but oh. I've got a a bunch of normals and hats, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> but uh. what I did end up with are, are amazing looking. I mean, they they you've seen the albinos and the blonde lessers and I mean they're just everything's just great looking I mean yes. couldn't ask for better clutches but other than odd wise I could jeez well there's always next year oh yeah cool alright Steve well go ahead what now they're all all starting to pound food right now getting ready for next because the breed, breeding season's coming right up <laughs> well, if you want to, if you want to borrow my uh, my male flyer, let me know. All right, all right. He's ready. He's up to size. I don't really have anything to breed him to here, so you know. Oh, all right. Yeah, we can do uh, something. We'll put him to the blonde, blonde pastel. They'll be real nice. Say. Yeah, blonde pastel lesser fires. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I don't think it's been right. done yet either. Oh, you mean so we yeah. can put a crazy name on it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll let you name it. <laughs> All right. I like to kind right, of cool. stick, stick with the stick with the name so that no one gets confused. <laughs> you know. Yeah, and I think. I don't know. People kind of frown on that. I don't know. They they think it's silly to add extra names to things, and which I kind of agree on sometimes. I don't know. I change my opinion on that kind of. What do you think about people that you know are naming their own stuff and confusing things? What do you think about that? I mean, if it's if it's brand new, you know, a, a totally new morph, I, of course name it. But 
I don't know, it's hard to keep up with everything when you, you name it something else, and then you're like, what is in it? Trying to figure out all the different stuff in it. You know, and I would just assume, you know, say, blonde, lesser, fire, you know, and just, then you know, <laughs> you yeah. know. Right. All right, cool. Well, uh, Steve, why don't you give out your information so people can find you, and uh, thanks again for an awesome news segment. Check me out on Facebook and YouTube under BC Barker Creations. That's right. All right, Steve, thanks again, and have yourself a great evening. You too. Thank you. Okay. Take care, Take Steve. Take care. You too. All right, Tim, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. Does the size matter? <laughs> Do you want me to uh, go grab my fiance and have her answer that question? <laughs> well, no, no, I'm talking about leopard answers. What did you think I was talking about? <laughs> I know you were. I was joking with you. Um, <laughs> I was, I'm only kidding, too. <laughs> the uh, if you ask any Great Dane owner if size matters, I'm sure they'll say yes. So right. I'm sure right. it also translates to gecko keepers. Well, folks, tonight we're going to be talking about giant leopard geckos and regular leopard geckos, of course. Uh, most of us out there, uh, I think the majority of people own regular-sized leopard geckos, and but there are there is a uh, following for the supersized versions that uh, Ron Tremper brought to us so many years ago, and uh, our guest tonight, Keith Kiggins of GiantLeopardGecko.com, um, is definitely working with the giant leopard geckos, hence his name. Uh, so let's go ahead and bring on Keith and uh, find out what he's working on. Keith Kiggins from GiantLeopardGecko.com, you are live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hey Dave, how are you? Doing good, Keith. How are you? I'm here with Tim. I'm well. How, how are you, Tim? I'm good, Keith. Good to hear from you. I'm looking forward to the show tonight. Yeah, I, you know, I, I hope I surprise a few people. If you've read my blog at all, I won't, but <laughs> some of, I'm sure I will for some. All right, cool. Well, well uh, Keith, tell us a little bit about GiantLeopardGecko.com and tell us about some of your history in herpetoculture and Basically, what fascinates you about uh, leopard geckos? Okay. Um, you know, I started out like most, uh, you know, the, my, my first memories as a child or growing up in western Colorado were catching lizards in the hills. I did that mm. insistently for, you know, throughout my youth. I would catch them. I'd keep them in aquariums in a shed outside our house. I would bring them to school in buckets. <clears throat> Um, you know, we caught a lot of western collared lizards and let them run on their back legs on the playground, that sort of thing. So I always have been a lizard guy. Um, you know, you grow up, you you maybe wind around. Somewhere around the time I got out of college, I decided, um, yeah, I had, an igu- I had an iguana, that sort of thing. The typical, always had a reptile pet, it seemed like. Um, about 1995 is when the real exotic pet trade began at least in my view, that's when we started seeing more reptile-specific stores opening. Um, I happened to cross one and found an Egyptian Euromastix that I couldn't live without, so 
that was the first really truly exotic animal I probably brought home. Um, from there, you know, same story, 96, 97, I started breeding. Um, failed chameleons were the first animals I bred. Um, leopard geckos, bearded dragons, crested geckos, a story, you know, I've kept and I've kept a great deal of animals and bred a few. So, um, mm-hmm. really, that was that was the start of herpticulture. Um, I was fortunate enough living here in Denver that you know I had a great mentor when I met Sean Nyland, who was managing Pro Exotics at the time. Um, found out that he used to be my almost next door neighbor once upon a time, and and we hadn't actually known each other when we lived across the street from one another, but. Um, he was kind enough to show me what a professional herpticultural um, business looks like. And without him, I would have probably never, ever gone down the road of trying to do this you know, to the scale that most of us are doing it. Um, so I, yeah, I just wanted to give him a shout-out because he truly is an unheralded legend in this hobby. He's been working with leopard geckos for over 30 years. So um, he's right there alongside the the one guy you always think about, but um, neither here nor there. That taught me a lot. Um, and it was just recently, about 2010, I, I got the bug again. I finally had the finances. I had the wherewithal. I had the, the, the business sense. Um, just everything came together as I, you know, I had matured and been through some life experiences, this, that, and the other, and decided I wanted to get back into leopard geckos, A, because they're easy to set up, um, and they're, you know, the the morphology is immense and incredible, as I'm sure everybody would agree. So, um, oh, yeah. not the like. And but the biggest thing, you know, I was living in an apartment. It was easy to put a couple racks in there. It's super, you know, it's way harder to keep a beer, you know, a pair of bearded dragons in a four foot cage with lights and all that giddy up. But um, it's just grown since then. I, you know, I, I I built my infrastructure out and. Uh, yeah. Cherry picked some animals for breeding projects and have just gone from there. So that's kind of the that's kind of the long and short of my my trip through herpticulture to today, I guess. Well, that's that's cool, and I, I mean, I definitely share the sentiment, and I think a lot of us can relate to to your story. It's, it is a very common way that a lot of us got into this, but I definitely don't think it should be taken for granted. Because I think a, a lot of us are very lucky to have discovered herpetoculture, and I, I hope that more people out there discover herpetoculture. Um, Kip, do you think that herpetoculture is going to become more widespread in the future? Do you think it'll ever become mainstream? Well, yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's, I think it's thriving in certain markets, and you know, certainly with social media and just the internet in general. I mean, it's funny, you know, I. When when Steve Sykes was on a, a while back, I remember him saying something that I that I chuckled at, and that was he bought his first leopard geckos from the Reptiles Magazine Classifieds. Well, that's in 1990. I bought my first leopard geckos from the Reptiles Magazine Classifieds, then my first veiled chameleon, then my first bearded dragon. So, um, you know, the internet the internet then, and it, it it you know what we saw on the internet were priceless. This is a list of species. This is how many males and how many females, and this is what they are. You, you never saw a picture. There was no such thing. So, um, you know, the, the the way the internet has advanced the marketing opportunities for just even the casual, you know, hobbyist that only has a breeding 
pair in their bedroom have a smartphone that they can take exceptional pictures with, post those things on the Internet right away, and, I mean, you know, share what they're doing. So, you know, I can see herpetoculture remaining strong. Uh, some of the legal issues obviously are going to, you know, pose some threats to what we do. Um, by and large, the industry has grown leaps and bounds. And, and yet, at the same time, it kind of comes and goes. People come and people go, and certain ones stay around. And um, it, it'll be interesting. I'm not sure I can pro prognosticate very well as to what we're going to deal with. Uh, a lot of it will have to do with legislation and um, you know those sorts of things. But right now, I think we're we're pretty healthy and strong. Don't you? I think so. I'm, I'm some days I'm a little uncertain. I, some days I feel more positive than others, but I think as, you know, at the end of the day, um, I think we definitely have something special here, and I'm I'm just just so thankful to be a part of it, and uh, just to, to have so many great other peers out there that are just enthusiastic and doing what they love, and I think, uh, I think we're living in interesting times, and I think it's a great time to be in herpetoculture, that's for sure. Keith, so tell us how you went from those first uh, few lizards to uh, to leopard geckos. Well, um, well, I got out of it completely at least twice. That's the answer. Um, you know, it, it, when you're young, you can think a lot and you can dream a lot and you can hope a lot. The bottom line is, do it right. You really have to have some resources available to you, and I didn't have that back in the day. Um, you know, certain life events, um, changing jobs, relocating, getting married, getting divorced, whatever. You know, those things all affect your ability to, to maintain certain things. Um, my biggest thing getting back in was, A, I discovered all the more. I had truly taken a long break. Um, right around the time the raptor was discovered and started being marketed, I kind of took a break. I, uh, I had a, a small group of geckos, but I wasn't really doing anything with them but keeping them as pets. And then, um, you know, I, I, I had a windfall. I had some finances available to me that I hadn't had before, and that's really where I said, okay, I can do this right now. I can buy racks. I can buy thermostats. I can, you know, maintain feeders consistently. I'm, I'm not going to be wanting or hurting for what I need, and, I focused way more on setting things up correctly from the very beginning rather than just bringing some animals home, sticking them in a tub, putting them on a shelf, and then realizing I had no way to keep them warm or, you know, the, that their environment wasn't going to be correct. So, um, you know, it was years and years and years of observation experience, uh, in, you know, bobbing and weaving through the industry. Um, a lot of Internet forums back in the day when they were first coming out were pretty cool. Um, to be honest with you, I learned a ton from Frank Reedes, who was famous on the Kingsnake Monitor forums. Um, you know, there was a time when I dreamed of working with nothing but Australian dwarf monitors, for instance. So I spent tons of time researching monitors. But um, Frank said something, and to this day I still use it. Eat them, feed them, and breed them. And that's what I do with my leopard geckos and pretty much all my other animals. So. Nice, nice. And now, um, it seems that uh, you've taken a special liking to giant uh, leopard geckos, and you decided to name your operation Giant Leopard Gecko. Um, so what is it about the giants that you like so much, and what is your 
I guess, what are your biggest ones? Yeah, I, you know, I way back when, when Ron first um, started selling them, I bought a Moose Sun, um, just a young one, because back then, Ron, you know, he was selling them as babies when they first, when he first started marketing those things, and um, it was really cool gecko, but I can't say it ever got very big, because I probably wasn't taking very good care of it, um, and I ended up selling my whole collection, and that gecko was one of them. Um, but I always thought, you know, that's really cool. The super giants, they get big, right? So um, when I when I decided to, to turn around and get right back into it, um, I, I for whatever reason, I really liked the super giant more. So that's what I just that I mean it just happened. Um I happened to the first animals available to me happened to be giants and uh, I just kind of started focusing on those and um and I mean the rest is kind of history I guess and you know giantleopardgecko.com is you know one of the things I was taught is that, that to run a business correctly you should use your business name as your website name and I thought you know Keith's big cool leopard geckos was a pretty poor way to, you know, make a website. So um, that's the, the story behind the name is, is that simple. I mean, everybody knows leopardgecko.com, so, you know, why not throw giant in front of that and distinguish myself as that's what I'm working with is, um, as that's, uh, that's really what I focused on. I've got males that are, you know, I won't say a foot long because I don't sit there and measure them. Um, that's one of my pet peeves is my eyes tell me what the animals are. Um, I think it stresses them out a lot to try to get accurate measurements and all that sort of thing. So I don't mess around with that too much. But my eyes tell me the difference between a super giant male and a giant male and a non-giant male all day long in my room. So um, my super giants, you know, uh, the big ones are 11 and a half inches. The more average ones are 10 and a half to 11 inches right in there. Most of the giants are 10 inches probably. Um <clears throat> That's that's kind of how I look at it. As far as weights go, uh, you know, I probably have the largest Murphy patternless on the planet. He's 120 grams. It came from Ron. I have wow. put zero him in the year I've had him. So <laughs> um, he's a big dude. I've got a couple of big guys that you know are they could eat, I could push him to 140, 150 grams if we cared about weight. But um, I'll save that for later in the discussion because I'm sure that's going to come up. Yes. So, definitely. so what do you like to uh, to feed your your giants? You know, unfortunately, mealworms. Um, that's what we do in the hobby, right? Is it's pretty much mealworms all day, every day. Um, some people have great luck with dubias. Problem with dubias, you got to put a lot of energy into actually culturing the dubias. Um, I'm in a, uh, you know, I'm kind of a limited time situation where I just pretty much have to rely on mealworms because I can order them, get them in, feed them out for, you know, two weeks usually, and then get another order placed. And that just works for me. Um, you know, if, if you want my opinion on feeders, I would go with crickets all day, every day, if I could. But most of us know how much of a pain in the butt crickets are to maintain, the smell, all that stuff. I, unlike anyone else, I don't enjoy working with crickets, so I don't but I think they are a way healthier diet for leopard gecko than mealworms are. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Some people 
I guess uh, a lot of people have had different different opinions on that. Um, I personally wish there was an alternative uh, to mealworms and crickets and dubious because I'm pretty much allergic to the mealworms and the roaches and the crickets are just so noisy and smelly and escape. And so, you know, the three main food sources for me are just, you know, not really ideal. But, uh, you know, I do feed most of my geckos mealworms, and most people I know use mealworms too. Um, but and sure the delivery mechanism by far. What's that? What'd you say? It's the easiest delivery mechanism by far. I know. Well, I mean, in nature, they they would eat some varying, you know, insects that we don't have even obtainable to us. And I hope someday we can be able to study more of their eating habits in, in the wild so that maybe there are other things that we could feed them. Um, some people have gotten away with feeding leopard geckos uh, freeze-dried mealworms that don't even move. I mean, they're dead. Um, have you ever sure. tried feeding any anything else to, to your guys? I'm sorry? Have you ever tried feeding anything other than that to, to your... Uh, your geckos? No, you know, and I, I think you'd agree with me. It's, you know, it's one thing to sit here and say, you know, I do nothing but these dubia and blah, 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 but my question is how big is your collection? You know, I've got two to three hundred geckos I have to feed. I have to do something mm-hmm. that's quick, efficient, reliable, um, you know, and, and, and maintains the health of the animals, and mealworms will do that for you. The problem I have with mealworms, the reason I say crickets are a better feeder, I know a lot of people probably got caught off guard with that. Um, your geckos don't get obese on crickets. Your geckos get very obese on mealworms, and thus why weight is a real um, sensitive issue with me when I talk about giant leopard geckos, because weight is a indicator of how much food a gecko eats. It has nothing to do with genetics in any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Well, most of our geckos today are definitely overweight. You're absolutely right. And um, that is an issue that affects a lot of different aspects, including uh, reproduction and um, egg clutches, how many, how, how productive a female is going to be. And uh, even males, I, I have males that are uh, just overweight. They don't seem to be very interested in breeding sometimes. And I, okay. I'm out of my way to... Go ahead. I'm sorry to interject. They're kind of like people, aren't they? When they get yes. over, they don't have the energy. They don't have certain things, capable abilities that they once had. Right, right. So I, I think some fasting for them is good. Have you ever uh, thought about that, like with some of the overweight geckos? Always. Yeah. Oh, you know, I, I'm I'm an underfeeder. I, I'm a light feeder. I, uh, I raised... Pretty much all my 2013 babies I raised on five mealworms per feeding, counted them out, and that's and none of them got very big very fast. This year, I the the early hatchers I increased my feedings, and I mean I saw pretty pretty substantial growth rates right out of the gate. But um, yeah, for by and large, I feed very light, and that's why I don't have 130 gram super giant males. I mean, I probably I think I have. I've got 10 or 12 supergiant males, and, you know, like, my biggest is 120 grams. My 
second biggest is 115 to 105 during the breeding season. Uh, most of mine probably average closer to 100 than they average to 110 most of the time. I just I, I don't see the need to feed them like that. So I don't. Um, you know, like I said before, with my eyes, I can tell what they are. I don't need the scale to confirm it for me. So um, that's you know that's my my soapbox about weight and and leopard geckos in a nutshell, right there. Um, my best. I I, I agree with are, you. It's definitely um, you know when you see a picture online of a leopard gecko that's obviously obese, you don't need to know you know, how many grams it weighs to say that gecko's overfed. It's it's pretty easy to, to, to notice it right away. And um do you think also uh feeding and keeping your your geckos at a healthy weight also affects their longevity? I I would just about guarantee it. Um, you know, I have no I have no data to fall back on there, but the world's most famous supergiant died very, very young, and we have to ask ourselves why. Um, the first son of, T- of Godzilla was sold to a, a local breeder here at the time in Denver, died at two years old. He was 170 grams. I mean, he ate himself to death. So, yeah, I, you know, I would have to believe that, that there's, a, there's a truth to it. Um, you know, leopard geckos lived 20 years. How many of us have... 12 or 15 year old leopard geckos that we can actually use as data. So I don't, but um, I have no idea. I I think it's just like human beings. Obesity is a bad thing. So you know, you you want them to be healthy and lean. Like I'll I'll fall back on what Sean always told me. Um, He wants them to look like um, basketball players. He doesn't want them to look like offensive linemen. He wants them to look tall and lean. Strong. He doesn't want them to look pudgy and slow and fat. So I've, I've kind of gained a lot from, from his attitude towards the super giant gene or the giant gene um, and the way he's approached it. So okay, and that makes absolute sense, and I agree. I, I try to keep mine athletic here as well, and uh, especially my females. But uh, definitely seen some uh, over the last few years. Uh, I have a couple of super giant males here, and if they are uh, overweight, they just they really don't seem too interested in breeding. So that's just from my own experience as well. But um, you know, Keith, there's and this this question I'm going to ask you. Uh, we do have some varying opinions out there, and uh, I think it's interesting to to find out what your take is in, is on it based on your experience. Um, the giant gene and the super giant gene. Do you think it is a, a dominant? Like Ron says, or Kodam, uh, and do you, or do you think it could be a recessive or line bridge trait? I know some breeders, uh, like John Scarborough, believe that it's it's likely a recessive in his from his experience. And um, what do you think uh, about it from your work with it? I would state with 99.999% confidence it's incomplete dominant. Um, mm-hmm. Every old giant male I have here is bigger than any two-year-old non-giant male. None of them are huge because giants don't get very big. Um, giant is a misnomer. It's a, it's a poor choice of words for this gene. Um, but I have produced super giant animals from giant to giant breedings, one in four, just like you should. I produce super giant animals from super giant to giant breeding, one in two, just like you should. 
um, you know, I've, I've had no problems um, producing the results that I would expect from the um, breeding probabilities. Uh, you know, the, the thing about the giant gene that, that bothers me is it's just a genetic mutation. It's not magic. It's not some sort of far out, out of this world, different thing. It's, I mean, if these animals were simply albinos, that's what they would be as albinos, but they're not. They're super giants because that's the homozygous form of the gene. Um, yeah, that, so that's, you know, that's my take on the genetic makeup. I, I'm 100, I'm going to say 100% positive dominant. You know, in the three years that I've been working really heavily with them, I've tried every single, I've mixed and matched every single, you know, genetic match, and my results have been consistent with all the probability charts. I have no problem saying that it's in complete dominant anymore. There was a time John and I talked about it, talking about calling it recessive, and I think you're not far off. I mean, you can't hurt yourself calling it recessive because a recessive, a simple recessive and an incomplete dominant are essentially the same exact thing with an incomplete dominant. In the first generation. Visually, a difference. But mm -hmm. with the giants, sometimes that difference is so subtle, it's almost not even, you know, it's, it's more difficult to notice with, this gene. So um, most of my giant males are, when they're 80 grams, man, they they look bigger than an 80 gram non-giant male, but just in length, you know, they're probably a half inch longer. They're just, they're, their body structure is a little different. Um, there's just a look to them that's different. Um, they definitely get, I'd say they definitely get bigger as they get mature. You know, I've had 95 and 100 gram non-giant males and they don't look anything like a giant or super giant. It just it's not the same animal. So uh, part of that, though, is just having a huge, you know, a big enough collection where you can see these things and compare them. And that's, you know, somebody that only has, you know, a handful of animals may just may not have that luxury of being able to compare them side by side the way I've been able to. So And, you yeah. know, while, while I'm on the subject, I'm going to talk about growth rates because it's another huge myth is that they somehow grow faster. They actually grow slower. Um, the whole idea of reaching a certain weight by one year of age, um, to me that's just a, a one-way ticket to overfeeding. There's, there's no other way to look at it. Most of my animals at two years old, I have absolutely no question what they are. At one year old, sometimes I still have questions. Two years old to me is the magic number for when you really truly know what your animals are going to be or are, I should say, because they are what they are when they hatch. But it's hard to tell sometimes. You know, if you breed them young, you're gonna you're gonna push them back a little bit in their growth cycle, and they're gonna have to catch up later and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, I don't treat my my super giant animals and my giant animals any different than regular leopard geckos. Um, and I just keep them exactly the same way, more or less. Um, and, uh, you know, at two years old, that's when I when I see with my eyes that they are exactly what I thought they were, you know? Mm -hmm. Cool. So what you're saying is one of the questions that we had from um, a follower uh, was uh, Gerard has asked uh, about the enclosure size for a giant compared to a normal size uh, leopard gecko. So you don't... Do you, do you change the your method as far as the size enclosure for them, or is it the same? You know, I like I like to keep my males. 
I like to keep my mature males in big tubs by themselves if I can get away with it. Um, I, I seldom keep a super giant in a 15 quart tub or a 12 quart tub, whatever size you may have. Um, uh, typically, I try to keep the big males in big tubs. Um, you know, a, a very well known breeder that works with giants gave me a little tip a few years ago, and he said that the secret to growing a really big one is to give it lots of room to thermoregulate. Um, and I, I kind of took that to heart a little bit. So I, I kind of, you know, I take that approach. Um, most of my females, they're not breeding, are kept in just single 12-quart tubs or 15-quart tubs, you know, the, the standard small tubs we use for adults. Um, it's kind of common sense. If the animal's really big, he probably would enjoy a bigger space. So that's kind of my... My animal, you know, my my attitude there is read your animals and do what you think is right for your animals. And that's, you know, that's the Frank Reedy's in me that comes out. It's all about reading the animals and doing what they ask you to do. Yeah, that's true. I agree with that, too. What do you think about uh, some of the, the combinations uh, that you can make with giants? And what are you working with as far as giant combos? Um, you know, I... I've got, I have giant bell albinos that I created from scratch. I have giant Las Vegas albinos that I created from scratch. Um, and I'd like, you know, if you don't mind, I'll talk about how I went about that process because I think that would be fairly oh, yeah. informative. People are, <laughs> Keith, people are going to want to know exactly how you made those. Let's hear it. <laughs> well, you, you make it the same way you made anything else. You find an animal, A, that is, not set for an albino strain, right? They exist. They're out. It's not that hard to do. I uh, I was fortunate that the very first super giant that I bought with the specific um, motivation to outcross not had trimper albino. I bred him to four different albino fe- trimper albino females. Um, I produced well over. I don't know, 40, 50 babies at least, and he's never produced an albino. You know, there's almost inevitably every single time I've test bred an animal, I've proven their genetics in the first clutch or two. Um, and so with him, I I hit the jackpot right away with him. Um, he was actually head eclipsed, which didn't make me all that happy um, for other reasons, but he wasn't head tripper albino. So there's the keystone male in a project of this sort, right? Because now I can him to anything, more or less. <laughs> so I can breed him to a typhoon, which I did. I can breed him to radars, which I've done. Um, and so, you know, that first generation, they're going to be giants because it's an incomplete dominant gene. Even if you think it's a recessive gene, they're still going to be heterozygous for supergiant, which is what giant means. Um, so... Last year, I produced a handful of giant bell albinos and one or two giant Las Vegas albinos. This year, unfortunately, I, I didn't get my breeding matchups quite the way I needed them, and I probably won't have anything to offer in those two morphs. Next year, I should do much, much better. Um, I'm working with, you know, our raptors. Um, jungle trimper albinos are still one of my favorites. Um, what else have I done? Some band, you know, I've got some old bandity stuff that is got giant 
um, participation in that project. Um, well, you know, a lot of the pretty, nothing really, you know, nothing really out of the ordinary. I, I produced one little white and yellow giant this year that I'll, you know, hold back for next year and figure out what to do with that animal. Um, so, yeah, kind of a potpourri, but you know, my my long-term goal is really whittle it down and to focus, you know, to to focus a on keeping the hex out of the equation and um, nice homozygous examples that I want to do. And those will be the albino strains and you know, uh, raptors will always be fun. Diablo blancos. I have um, quite a few super giant Diablo blancos, or I will have at least. So. Um, that's still one of my favorites. Nice, nice. Um, Keith, we're we're at the halfway point. Did you? I know that your time was a bit limited tonight. Did you want to come back after the mid-show break for a little bit, or um, what did you want to do? No, I can I can hang out for a little bit if there's more questions, or you know, talk about whatever. Okay, cool. We're gonna take a quick break, and um, we'll be right back. Hang tight, folks. And uh, thank you very much for tuning in tonight. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www. Ron Tremper is the biggest contributor to leopard gecko morph making, known worldwide for his amazing examples of living art. You can now download his Leopard Gecko Care app, his Morph Encyclopedia app called Leopard Gecko Pro, and visit his site, leopardgecko.com, to see where morphs are made. GiantLeopardGecko.com specializes in giant and supergiant leopard geckos with a focus on selectively bred exceptional lines of many different morph combinations, including high-end African fat tails and crested geckos. With over 17 years of experience in herpetoculture, Keith Kiggins brings you quality, integrity, and value. Check out GiantLeopardGecko.com on the web and on Facebook. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species, including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps, ABDragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. And that's right, folks. Don't forget about the standard discount with AP Dragons for 5% off uh, your order. That is Gecko, all in caps. Use it at checkout. And um, 
our guest tonight also has a standard discount for until September 30th. I'll let him tell you about that when we bring him back on. Just want to mention now is your chance, folks, to call in with your questions. If you have husbandry questions or questions in particular about leopard geckos or for Keith or myself or Tim, feel free to call in. The number is 646-478-5331. And make sure you press 1 when, it's, when you're prompted so I know uh, that you'd like to come on the air. All right, very good. We're going to go ahead and bring back our guest. All right, Tim and Keith. I know, Tim, you wanted to start off the second half of the show. Go ahead, bud. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say, uh, again, in regards to uh, White Plains next weekend, um, I look forward to the show. And uh, if anybody is interested in purchasing any of my geckos, I'll be either hanging around Dave's table or – you could come see me at the Long Island Reptiles table, which is right next to Cutting Edge Herp, uh, which is Vin Russo's table. Um, and I'll give a discount to anybody that mentions Gecko Nation Radio as well. Um, the table will should have some nice, really nice crested geckos on it, produced by John Heiser. And uh, so if you're interested in crested geckos, you should definitely come check them out. And, Keith, I'd also like to say uh, thank you for sponsoring the show. Um, I'm glad that uh, Dave lets me be a part of it, and I think it's great um, getting this information out to um, to everybody in the hobby, whether they're new or whether they've had a lot of experience. Um, as I said earlier in the show, I, I learn a lot from the show. Um, are there any uh, tips or tricks uh, that you'd like to share with the listeners about how you keep your leopard geckos? Um, well, thanks, Tim. I, uh, you know, I, like I said earlier, heat them, feed them, and breed them. It sounds that simple, but that's kind of how I go about it. I mean, yeah, the, hus- the, the amount of information on husbandry uh, is copious, and, you know, quite frankly, these are some of the easiest reptiles to keep in captivity by far. Um, you know, we're talking paper and a hide spot and a food dish. And, you know, some of us keep water dishes. I keep water dishes because the geckos do come out and drink pretty much immediately when they get water. But I also live in a very dry climate where um, uh, my water dishes dry out really fast. I don't keep humid hides in most of my cages. I do for my African fat tails, but I do not for leopard geckos. Um, That's just more of a logistics reason. I mean, you know, if you've got 150 tubs or whatever the number is, it's difficult to maintain. You know, you, you kind of want to make it simple. You want to make it manageable. You want to make it fun. Um, hopefully all those things can come together for you. So, um, you know, honestly, during the throes of breeding season, I don't know how you guys feel, but it, it, it's fun for me to see the new babies, and it's almost dreadful for me to see the new babies about two months in because I know that I'm running out of space, and <laughs> you're working with the giant gene, it's difficult because the market... You know, the guys that have been doing it longer, it's all about size. And so trying to sell these animals young is, is flying in the face of what's already been established by the, by the veteran breeders that, that, that are offering them. So, you know, I, I kind of try to toe the line. I want to grow them up a bit. I want to get a little size on them. I want to, you know, I don't want people to buy a 20-gram gecko that I call a supergiant and be disappointed with me. But, um, um, you know, if that's... Just, so it's kind of a, a juggling act in that way, but um, 
you know, the tips I have are to keep it as interesting, keep it simple, keep it efficient, um, keep it affordable. You know, if you find yourself getting burnt out, then take a step back and look at why you think that is. Is it, you know, is it personal reasons? Is there other reasons? Um, you know, are, are the, is it the animals? Are you spending too much time on Facebook? Um, honestly, sometimes I find myself spending way too much time on the Internet and not nearly enough time listening to my animals. Um, so that's kind of where I come from and my strategy, you know, my attitude towards towards how I manage the hobby. That's very good advice, uh, Keith, about um, managing your time. And I personally can definitely resonate with the, the social media aspect. We, you know, we find social media to be very uh, engaging, and we find it, uh, in a sense, necessary today in order to help with advertising and marketing our uh, brand. Uh, but it is, it is a huge time sink. It definitely is. And if you're not careful, um, you could wind up devoting too much time to that and not enough time where, you know, it's it needed more. Um, what do you think overall, and I also, of course, I just want to jump in and definitely thank you for sponsoring the show also. Um, we're very selective about who we have sponsor Gecko Nation Radio, and uh, we're very happy to have you on board as a sponsor. And, uh, you know, I really appreciate that. But, um, you know, as far as, you know, Facebook, what do you think overall? What's your opinion about it? Like, do you think it's positive for a business or for, and for the community or, uh, you know, uh-huh. what do you think? <laughs> Very much love hate. Um, you know, I I like anybody else. I like seeing what other people are doing and, you know, sharing in some of those little small triumphs and whatnot and, and all that good stuff. Um the thing I the thing I find myself getting caught up in is you know the the arguing or the confrontations or just the the simple misinformation that gets spread around and that's the the most difficult part for me is just to avoid getting drawn into any of those so-called discussions that um, you know you don't know who you're talking to or are you talking to somebody who you know you're talking to somebody whose reality is their reality and it's difficult to necessarily um, quantify just how reliable their experience or their information might be. So with Facebook, you know, the groups groups I kind of try not to get too involved in because it can just really, you know, there's there's too much back and forth and and that sort of thing. And, you know, Facebook is so, um, so uh, what am I searching for, you know, instant gratification geared that most of the information just disappears off the page anyway. Um, and that's why I've gone to, you know, I, I, I maintain a blog on my website, and you just click blog at the top menu, and uh, I try to put all my thoughts in there, and, you know, perhaps I'm a little bit opinionated about certain things, and, you know, whatever, but that's where I try to put most of my thoughts. And if somebody, you know, somebody can email me if they if they find um, something that they want to ask a question about or or just take me to task and argue or whatever, I don't care. You know, um, that's kind of how I approach it now. Is 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 my Facebook page? You know, I, I disseminate information via that mechanism because you kind of have to. Um, you know, the name of the game is is making this fun. 
And for me, fun means I get to keep doing it. And I can't keep doing it if I'm just dropping, you know, my, my children's college education into it. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's a lot paid. It's, I think it's a necessary, it's necessary. I'm not going to call it an evil because I don't think it's an evil because I really do, you know, I spend a ton of time on Facebook and I'm kind of, yeah, not just in gecko groups or any of that stuff. I'm just kind of a Facebook junkie. I'm a I'm an IT guy, so I I sit in front of a computer all the time. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. IT guy is cool. You guys know all the insides and inside and outs of uh, how things work online. That's, I wish I knew more about that stuff. I actually um, in Gecko Nation, the group is doing really well, and um, you know we encourage uh, new people in the group, which is something not all groups on Facebook too. Um, so we do have a lot of beginners there. I think uh, I think it's a good thing because it's a gateway not only for beginners to learn about geckos, but also to, you know, we're going to be able to awaken some of those new beginners that are just buying Petco geckos and expose them to the finer geckos out there. So I think it's a good place to bring in new customers and new potential uh, serious breeders. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the things I experienced recently in my group, and I'm by no means uh, a master at being a, a group moderator. I'm still figuring out how to do it. But uh, I encountered a situation where people were kind of, it was borderline, you know, we want to call it a discussion, but it was borderline uh, attacking uh, a, a well-known, respected breeder on how they were marketing their, their brand and their products. And this person's a friend of mine, and I'm very loyal to my friends. And so I, I made sure that, you know, these these discussions were not going to happen in the group. And I, I, I guess I, a lot of people respected that, but uh, some people didn't like the fact that I was kind of censoring things. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, if you have an issue with someone, you can, you're supposed to take it to that person, I feel. And I think Facebook has created something where people don't always mind their own business. You know what I mean? And, you know, if you have an issue with somebody or an issue with something someone's doing, by all means, you should be able to email that person instead of creating a forum for people to just bash a person. And uh, I don't allow that in the group. So some people didn't like sure. that. <laughs> but uh, I think it was the right thing to do. I mean, no, I, I, you know, I, you, you've got to have control. Um, it's real. It would be super easy to just start you know, lambasting people side to side because, you know, there's a there's a an element of anonymity to the Internet, and it's always been this way with gecko forums, with um, fauna classifieds, with kingsnake forums. You're hiding behind a keyboard, so you can kind of say whatever you want to say. Um, you know, and that's where, you know, Facebook frustrates me because I do see things on there that I want to challenge or I want to, uh, uh, you know, take the task, but bottom line is, I don't know who it's going to help, if anybody. And it's probably just going to hurt me to get involved because, if nothing else, my blood pressure doesn't need it. So um, <laughs> <laughs> I got to so take that advice sometimes. Entertaining. That's uh, words of wisdom. Try not to. It's hard for me though. I'm in a position where you know, being the the host of the show and everything, I kind of get pulled into some things sometimes. It's hard. Oh. And, uh, yeah, I kind of want to stick up for all the injustices, and I kind of, you know, especially when when it's a friend of mine that's getting bullied, you know, online bullied. I'm usually the first one to jump in and defend them, and <laughs> it doesn't always help me. Uh, but 
it's just, uh, yeah, your blood starts boiling sometimes. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's all about integrity, though. Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's important, yeah. Well, what, you know, Keith, uh, you've talked a lot about leopard geckos tonight, but that's not all that you work with. You know, you work with uh, fat tails and cresties. Uh, do you want to touch on some of those projects? Yeah, I, uh, you know, I <laughs> fat-tailed geckos are a whole different world than leopard geckos, I think. Um, you know, I've, I've had certain fairly well-respected and, and very experienced breeders argue that point with me, but in my experience, fat-tails are not leopard geckos. They are uh, they're a different beast. Um, this year I'm going to try to do something a little different and, and fall in line with what most people have been doing for years, and that's cool my animals a little bit, probably starting this, this month maybe. Um, probably just pull their rack out of the room and, you know, pull it out into general population with the rest of my world and um, see if I can't do something with that. I've got, um, you know, the whiteout. I love the whiteout stuff. I've got some whiteout patternless males that I produced this year, just a pair, just two of them. Um, I'm, I'm really just learning how to successfully work with fat tails. It's a bit of a paradigm shift, and, and they definitely need more humidity. Um, if nothing else, they need a humid hide that really benefits them. Um, yep. You know, most all of mine eat mealworms, almost with no exception. Some are better than others. Um, I have Zulus. I have a whiteout Oreo or male that will be you know, the keystone of my whiteout Oreo project. Um, so those are the those are the morphs I'm working with, patternless Oreo. Um, I do have some AML tangerine tangerine AMLs that I'll be, you know, hopefully breeding. So um, definitely, yeah, I, fat tails are really cool little geckos. And once you get past the puffing and the posturing, get them in your hands, they're a little easier to work with than leopard geckos, actually. So um, enjoy those. I did... Um, Caught a wild hare here this past winter and decided that crested geckos were interesting to me again. I used to breed the heck out of them you know, 10, 12 years ago, whatever it was. Um, so I did, I've amassed quite a, uh, well, an entire wall of crested geckos that I'll be working towards, you know, I'll be um, <clears throat> selecting breeding groups out of that, probably end up with two or three breeding groups total. And then um, that was kind of, I still like them. They're just, a, again, they're a different way of husbandry. And for me and my situation, they may not, you know, typically they're very easy. But when you mix them in with leopard geckos and the, you know, the basically the assembly line mechanisms I have in place for my leopard geckos, it's a whole different type of thing. So um, I'll be working with those a little bit. I, have, I added a, some young Nephorus wheeleri that... Um, I don't know where I'll go with those. I just think they're super cool geckos. I don't know where that'll go as far as a breeding project, but those are cool. I can definitely see myself um, whittling down some of my leopard gecko population to add more nephorous type species. Um, you know, maybe maybe um, Steve will sell me some milii, or was it Tim that was talking about the milii? I, I, I got mixed up. But, uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Species. Yeah, Steve's working with uh, Golden Gate Gecko Line uh, uh, Millie Eyes uh, from Marsha. So, yeah, they're pretty cool. Uh, to get some I, of those. I'm interested. Yeah, he'll, I'm sure if he's going to let any go, you know, I'm sure he'll, 
they'll work with you. You know, and check them. You know, just check out check them out on Facebook and send them a message before. Uh, you know, if he starts announcing it, I'm sure he'll, you know there might be like a waiting list for him. I don't know that they're that common, right? Right. Yeah. Well, that's cool. You know, I I enjoy the Australian types as well. The the whaler eyes and the other knot tails, the Amy eyes, those are really interesting. Um, you know, crested geckos are are probably I don't know if they're just as um, popular as leopard geckos, but it's definitely a win-win species as far as ease of care and maintenance and breeding. Um, are you working with any interesting color and pattern morphs with the crested geckos? And also, do you, do they actually call them morphs? Are they technically morphs or just minor traits? You know, um, that's a good one. The, the crested gecko community, so to speak, is is kind of a different. It's a very passionate um, element. There, there's it's a little different than leopard geckos, I think. There's, there's a there's a passion there. Um, you know, everybody names all their animals. Um, it's like you know, you know, this one this one's a red robin by you know Suzanne Summers Cross and just like it's kind of, kind of, it kind of takes you to a different place if you start paying attention to it. And I'm I'm far too busy and have too little time to be coming up with cute names for my animals. So um, I have you know well I've bought basically all the stuff I got from two different sources, which are probably the two biggest crested gecko breeders in the country. Um, right here in Denver, Altitude Exotics. I have uh, you know six or seven animals I bought from Brian. Um, Pinstripes, Halloween pinstripes. Um, yeah, I, I I got I managed to pick up several um, C2 citrus line or C2 type morph line geckos from um, Anthony Caponetto reptiles. So you know most of my stuff's gonna be pinstripes, um, some red and cream, some um, well, the C2 stuff is I think really cool. Uh, yeah, kind of kind of takes out all the dirtiness, removes removes blotching and spotting and really cleans up the, the texture of the, the animals. Really cool-looking um, thing. As far as morphology goes, you know, those guys will tell you that there are both do, um, dominant, co-dominant, and recessive genes at play in the crested gecko world. I don't think anybody's really defined it well enough to where most of us know what they are. Um, but I'd be willing to bet you a guy like Anthony Caponetto knows exactly what he's working with and exactly what he's producing. Um, you know, there seems to be a real element of randomness to it, and there always has been. Um, Brian just bought the first um, Exanthic, right? They're Exanthic. The solid gray crested geckos, those are a genetic Exanthic. So they're, um, and that's the first, like, really obvious. Um, you know, if we were to compare crested to leopard geckos, that would be the first very obvious more because they're solid gray. They're, they, the yellow is white. There's no yellow. So, yeah, those, those are extremely interesting. And I've seen them in person, so definitely a different-looking deal. But, um, you know, pinstripes, tighter-y stuff. Um, I'm a big sucker for contrast. So, you know, the Halloween pinstripe type stuff and the red and cream stuff will always be interesting to me. Keith, nice. um, get, getting back to your leopard gecko project, um, tell us a couple of your favorite projects that you're working on and what um, 
what you're working towards? Sure. Um, you know, my probably my very favorite is the Diablo Blancos. Um, not sure. Just I just have always thought those that was a very cool, um, you know, triple triple recessive genetic. It's uh, um, and you add the code, you know, you add giant to it, and I guess it's a four gene complex, but. Um, so the Diablos I've been really concentrating on. I've produced quite a few this year. I don't know. Um, you know, I all you know most of my females are first year breeders, so that one will be you know I'll be offering a lot of that kind of stuff going forward because I really like those. Um, probably mix snow into it at some point, but as John and I have both found out, the snow gene messes with the blizzard gene, and you get a lot of false positives for eclipse. Um, you know, the first two so-called Max Snow uh, Diablo Blancos I bought were both pet Eclipse. Neither one were homozygous Eclipse. So um, I kind of strayed away from using the snow gene in that project for now for that very reason, because the eyes, they just messes with the eyes really bad. Um, um, and then, you know, my, the Bell Albinos. I really like Bell Albinos, and why not make them bigger? So that's kind of what I'm doing with those. And same thing with Las Vegas. It's uh, underappreciated morph, I think. And, you know, some of the uh, very different looking albino. So um, looking, you know, those are the three real core morphs that I will put energy and, and resources towards for sure going forward. And then, you know, the, the what I think is the bread and butter stuff, the raptors. Um, there's nothing, I don't, know that I'd like anything better than just a nice, clean, patternless rafter, you know, the, the way it was supposed to be. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll cherry-pick some of those out and work with, continue working with those. And um, Just yeah, jungle tripper albinos in general, I think, are always, you know, I've always enjoyed those. So that's kind of where the leopard geckos will be. Um, I guess I, I throw in bandits and bulls because I do like those too. So as you can see, um, yeah. the rabbit hole gets deeper and deeper and <laughs> separates from the leopard geckos. So, um, you know, once an addict, always an addict, right? We definitely are. Um, so tell us uh, a little bit about um, your refinements with some of those projects uh, and what you, what you look for in the babies that you hold back. Well, you know, it's, um, the number one thing is appearance. <clears throat> you know, I want um, I want the morphology to be true to what I'm looking for. So with the giant gene, it's difficult because, you know, fortunately, I'm a lot of my I've been able to arrive at super giant to super giant breedings, which means I take the guesswork out of the babies to some degree. So I don't have to sit around waiting to see if I can determine giant versus non-giant or whatever. Um, so, I mean, it's it's really just um, whatever best represents the morph. Like, like with the raptors, I've hatched, you know, a few that are nice, clean, patternless, um, bright orange with the nice, you know, with orange shock on the tail, the way they're supposed to look in my book. So that's what I will look toward as far as babies go. Um, Tangerine, same story. Brighter is better, right? Color sells. So, um, you know, unfortunately with some of those morphs, you learn real early on what you're looking at. Um, 
the bell albino is they tend to see nice color early. So that, that's kind of I, how I select for holdbacks and, or just necessity, you know. The last year, the last years, I've made mistakes. Um, I, I've chosen males that ended up not being giants that have put my projects behind schedule because I went by weight. I was thinking, well, this animal's nine months old and he's already 55 grams or something, and these other ones are only 40 grams and they're nine months old or whatever. And lo and behold, you know, at the year mark or right around there, I could look with my eyes and see that the males that I hadn't chosen to breed are longer than the male I did choose. And that happened two years in a row, both with Bell albino and Las Vegas albino. So uh, that goes back to earlier points about the giant gene. You know, two years is a much better place to be than one year as far as, you know, being positive, you have what you think you have. So... I, I definitely uh, hear you on that, and I'm uh, I'm just going through and, and looking at some of your uh, pictures on your site and on your Facebook page, and uh, all the listeners sh- should definitely go um, check out giantleopardgecko.com. And um, wh- can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your leopard gecko room and your setup? Sure. Um, you know the the one big takeaway I had, you know, like I said earlier, I was able to um, see what a professional herpetocultural operation should look like, and at least you know, this was back in '99, I think it was when I first saw um, a real operation, and everything was consistent. All the racks were exactly the same. Um, the heating was exactly the same. There was no mis- mixing and matching. There was, you know, it didn't look like a garage sale had gone off. Um, yeah, I took that away. Um, but it was all melamine stuff, and it was all built by a guy who was really, really good at building racks. Um, so where I've arrived at is I buy nothing but commercial racks. Most of my stuff is animal plastics. Um, I use Herpstat ther- thermostats pretty much exclusively. Um I do have a local guy here that's building ABS racks that are pretty slick, and, and his heating system is really cool. Um, the heat cable is not, ex- or the heat tape, I'm sorry, is not exposed. It's um, actually wafered between two thin sheets of ABS, so it really effectively heats both down and up to some degree. Um, but you never have tracking issues. Your tubs slide in and out, all that kind of thing. So. Um, my consistency isn't what I like it, but all of my racks are, you know, a, a professional grade PVC build. Um, mostly, I I like the iris tubs from the container store because I like the flat bottoms. Um, I do I love the Vision B35 tubs, so I do have a couple racks of those that I use for my main breeder racks. Um, if those guys would make a five inch tall small box, I would absolutely jump on board with it. But um, so you know that's. In a nutshell, that's it. It's, her, it's professional racks with Herpstat thermostats, and um, I try to get as consistent as I can because it just makes it so much easier at 4 o'clock in the morning for me to pull tubs, do my maintenance, stick tubs back in, and I don't have to, to think too much most days. So um, it's yeah, it's a small room. It's, it heats itself. Once you get to that critical mass point where you have enough uh, stuff going on. You don't have to worry about space heaters and all that sort of thing. It's, I've got a little window to vent that, that kind of stabilizes the temperature nicely, and 
Um, but that, but that's years of years to arrive at such a point where I realized exactly how I want my room to be. You know, um, and, you know, it took me a while to dial that in. So, um, pretty cool, pretty pretty simple, really. But um, still, you know, there was the, the more the more time you spend, the the more you know, the better you will be when you will arrive at that place that works for you. And that's what I always stress: is it's all about what works for you. My room is not your room. Um, my altitude is not your altitude. Your humidity is not my humidity, etc. So you have to do what works for you. Yes, and that and that certainly uh, makes a big difference. Um, you know, people listening to us uh, across the country and even in other countries. Um, there's, you know, pretty much no two reptile rooms are alike or no two, you know, keepers keep their enclosures the same way because it's completely different even though they're in our houses for the, you know, most of the time. Uh, our our reptiles are kept in our houses with us and, uh, you know, those outside uh, influences certainly affect them. Um, now, do you keep... Uh, you keep a lighting cycle or anything like that in your reptile room? I I do not. Just stay just just whatever light comes in through the windows. Um, you know I I my my window of opportunity to work in my room is pretty much 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. every morning. So um, the lights go on at 5 a.m. and they go off at 6 a.m. basically. And then whatever light comes in with the light of the day is the rest of it. And I think that works quite well. The pepper geckos are active basically 24-7 um, at any time of day, you you know, I've, I've seen activity at just about any time of day. Um, I think they do their most sleeping in the dark. I think they prowl a lot at dusk in, in, in lower light um, times, but it goes, it goes back to, to some of those fundamental principles that you may or may not agree with from, from other elements of the reptile keeping hospital you know, with the monitor world. Frank Reedy's revolutionized things by saying, yeah, you leave your lights on 24-7. The animals know how to get out of the light if they want to. And you know, nobody can argue with that because he's produced, you know, he produced more species than anybody. Um, you know, he's mm -hmm. ultra. So, um, you know, this, I, I treat pretty much everything the same way. I don't, I don't do light cycles. I just let nature take care of that for me. Um, you know, like bearded dragons, you you know, put a light on a timer, that sort of thing, because they really do need, you know, they need brighter light. But these animals, they can live on in low light conditions just fine, because that's what they're used to. They're fossorial. They're not going to be out in the bright sunlight anyway. So um, all they need to know is when it's day and when it's night. Yeah, and what, let's talk a little bit about supplementation, Keith. Uh, some people use a lot of varying different products and uh, ways of uh, applying it to, uh, you know, for their for their geckos. And uh, what do you use in your operation? Um, I I subscribe to the Vionate Osteoform recipe. That pretty much, you know, that's probably the more popular of any combination out there. Um, once again, a large collection. You need something that's going to be efficient. You know, I can't imagine buying enough RepCal and Herptivite to sustain you know, a couple hundred animals. Um, you know, Vinate comes in a big bucket. Osteoform, 
you know, comes in a big enough tub to where you can effectively, you know, at a one-to-four ratio, you can really mix it well. And my animals, you know, they they will lick the they will lick it clean no matter how I deliver it to them. I do um, with babies and young animals. I'll just generally just put some in the feed dish and then throw the food on top of it, and they will, you know, it'll it'll get cleaned up most of the time. Um, I do mix in crust eggshell as well. You can get it pretty much, you know, any bird supply type business will have crushed eggshell. So I mix that in as well, and they'll eat it all. They'll, you know, the, the geckos will lick that stuff right up. So um, with my adults, as they get into adults and then breeders, I use a uh, one part sand to one part vitamin mix. So I use you know, I, I use a clean, like a quick-read, medium-grade sand, just like the white beach sand that you would find. Um, and I've been doing that for years, and I, that's, you know, I've gotten that, I've developed that or inherited that philosophy from Sean at BMS, who has always done it, um, you know, for 30 years. It's hard to argue with those results. So um, they will lick that clean as well. The geckos need sand because it's roughage. It's just like we need vegetables and, you know, salad in our diets. It helps us. Well, sand helps them, and they will lick it clean. Um, so that's that's my supplementation strategy. Um, you can, you know, if, if you've got a little small collection, you can get away with just about anything as long as you're supplementing and you're using a decent product. I used to use nothing but um, mineral, and I, I always thought that was good stuff, but... Um, you know, in a bigger collection, it's impractical to buy some of those off-the-shelf commercial solutions like that. So, hmm. well, do you have any? Uh, so, I guess you feel that vitamin D3 is is necessary for leopard geckos. Uh, there seems to be a debate sometimes where people think that uh, because they're nocturnal, they don't need vitamin D3. Uh, how do you feel about that? Um, yeah, I don't think I've ever put a lot of thought into it. Um, like I say, this this supplementation program works, um, especially the Vionate. I think the Vionate is extremely beneficial to leopard geckos. It, it contains a lot of minerals that that they, I mean, I can see it with my own eyes. The ones that are really good about cleaning up their dishes are the ones that are definitely healthier animals. Um, plus, you know, I... I pay attention to what other people are doing. If, if guys like, you know, John and Matt are using this stuff, um, Brian at, at BHB or, you know, Brian Barczyk, same exact thing he uses for all his stuff. And these these guys have proven track records and, you know, um, I don't know that I'm not a scientist and, and I, I don't get that deep into the weeds more because I don't have the time and energy to do so than any other reason. So I don't know that I have a real opinion on D3, but yeah, it stands to reason these animals don't sit on rocks basking, so it's probably not entirely necessary. But I don't know that it's going to hurt them either. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I'm kind of like of the opinion they got to be getting D3 from some source in nature. Obviously, it's not from sunlight, but but maybe maybe they come out a few hours a day sometimes just to get enough that they need. I mean, I don't know. Um, we really don't have a lot of data. On, on the actual life cycle of uh, of these animals, unfortunately, because of the the, ter- the turmoil in the area there, but uh, in the Middle East, I hope someday that we can you know learn more about uh, the you know the actual 
natural cycles of these these creatures, and uh, which brings me to breeding uh, leopard geckos. And do you have any tips about uh, breeding leopard geckos for the listeners? Yeah. Um, well, eat them, feed them, and breed them. Um, you know, I I don't, and you know, I've got a different, a little different approach to things. I believe an animal should breed when it's sexually mature. So I saw quite, there was a question one of the folks um, asked us to address, which was, um, you know, is what weight should giants breed? Well, my answer for that is the same as my answer for non-giants. When they're sexually mature and able, healthy enough to produce eggs, and that's it. I've had, you know, I've had a little, I had a little super snow blizzard that produced several nice, healthy clutches at 35 grams. She wasn't getting bigger. The super snow, and they, you know, in my experience, super snows tend to stay pretty small or can stay small, especially when they're young. You know, they don't grow very fast, it seems. So she wasn't compromised in any way, shape, or form breeding at that weight. Um, you know, if you can, why not let them get a little older and more mature? But this year, you know, I, I skipped a lot of animals this year where they ovulated and I didn't breed them. And for the most part, they just got really thin and then had to catch back up. So it was kind of like, why did I, you know, why didn't I breed them? Because it didn't seem like it benefited them to not breed. Uh, right. So that's, that's my, you know, that's my approach as far as that goes. Animals are sexually mature and they're reasonably healthy. The weight doesn't matter to me because, once again, I think a healthy female non-giant leopard gecko should weigh about 50 grams. I think a healthy male should be about 60 grams. I don't see the need to make them a lot bigger than that. Um, with giants and super giants, you know, plus or minus 10 to 15 grams. I mean, you know, like I said earlier, a lot of my super giant males, 100 grams, 110 grams, that's plenty. They're, they don't need to be bigger. There's no reason to make them heavy. So, um, and they personally, you, you alluded to it earlier, and I agree 100%, the bigger, heavier animals don't always breed very well, and especially with females. I've had some females that I bought very big that have not been great producers the first year or whatever. And, you know, once they lose some of that weight and then have to catch back up, you know, the, the typical up-and-down breeding cycle you know, they typically breed better that next year at a lower weight. So, um, you know, it's all, once again, it's about reading your animals and understanding them more so than following rules that other people have told you about. So that's kind of how I approach it is I can, the animals will tell me what they need and what they don't need and um, if, 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 if they've had enough, you know, that sort of thing. So that's where I focus is. What are my animals telling me? Okay, well that makes sense. I mean that's that's good uh, advice. And you know there are everybody's going to have other every breeders going to have their own little tri uh, tricks and tactics to breeding. And um, you know I've definitely listened to a lot of different uh, respectable breeders and formed my own uh, methods here. And it's definitely worked for me. And every year I learn a little something uh, new that makes my uh, operation run better, smoother. And, uh, you know, until we're in a constant state of evolution and trying to perfect what we do, um, that's going to change. That's always going to change with new input from someone else. And 
Um, that's what we do here on the show, Keith. We bring information and experience uh, from breeders like you to the community and hope that um, it helps the new people out there and the seasoned uh, keepers. And um, we're, we're actually getting to the to the end of the show now, and I'd like to uh, once again thank you very much for not only sponsoring the show but for also uh, coming on. You have an open invitation to come on any time and uh, I'd like to give you this chance to leave the listeners with any uh, closing remarks that you'd like to. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, I appreciate the time, David. It's uh, yeah, I, I I don't make time very often for discussion, um, <laughs> especially at this time of night. I'm usually in the throes of bedtime trying to cultivate two little human critters. So those little guys are harder to raise than leopard geckos. But um, yeah, I appreciate. And I, I encourage anybody to reach out to me at giantleopardgecko.com. Um, you can contact me at, at you know through that through the website. You can contact me on Facebook if you have questions, whatever. Um, you know, just uh, I'm, I, I try to be available for that sort of thing. And you know, maybe one of these days we can do a little roundtable with John and um, or somebody you know, John and a couple other guys. And I would probably be down for that if we can work that out. So. Um, but I appreciate you having me. I'm glad you gave me the opportunity, and, and I'm happy to be a sponsor. Awesome. Yes, you're, you're very welcome, and we'd love to – that's a great idea about the roundtable. We haven't done a roundtable in a while. So, uh, yeah, we should get the band back together, so to speak, and, uh, you know, get something cooking. I'll definitely uh, include you in on the next one. Sounds good. Keith. Maybe John and I can argue about sunset blizzards. How about that one? <laughs> okay. Yeah, that sounds good. All right, maybe we can do um, a roundtable discussion on uh, on morphs or something, you know, like on uh, on some new morphs that are coming out. We can discuss them yeah. and uh, critique critique them a bit. He can he can discuss and I'll listen because I mean if there's if there's the one guy that is just exceptional in this hobby right now, I think it's John. So um, definitely get to give him a shout out because. I've learned a lot from him since I've known him in the last, you know, three years. We've gotten fairly close, and now that he lives here in town, I've, you know, I haven't unfortunately seen his collection since it's grown exponentially. And he keeps like 35 different species now, but um, the guy knows what he's doing, and he he's very similar to my approach in that, you know, he, he's very much about letting the animals tell us what they are and what they're doing and that sort of thing. And he's a lot less about the rules that he reads. So um, that would be fun. But He also thinks he's a lot cooler now that he has Fuscus in his collection. So What's that? I said he also thinks he's a lot cooler now that he has Fuscus in his collection. Well, well he is a lot cooler. <laughs> he's also a lot cooler. <laughs> <laughs> I know. No, it's cool. Yeah. He and I were talking about it last night. He's, he's got some incredible ones. I mean, I've seen the Angry Main view, and those things are ridiculous. So, I don't know. If you think a super giant is something, you wait until you see a 14 inch Angry Main view. Those things are just ridiculous looking. I know. They're cool. Definitely. Yeah, someday I'll get into those. We'll see. I'm not ready to take a plunge just yet, though. Well, you know, they, you know, they're a slow grower, so that's a that's one that you're. It's going to be a labor of love if you really want to work with something like that. And, and the hard wiki eye, you know, they're not a leopard gecko per se. They they you keep those different, and I think the fuscus you keep differently as well to that degree. So 
a little bit of a learning curve and it's a big investment, but cool stuff. And I think that's what keeps our hobby and keeps the Leopard Gecko community moving forward, hopefully. Oh, it's never going to get old. I mean, we're in a genetic chess game, you know, and uh, I just see, like, I see, I think we're just getting started in a lot of different ways. You know, I think the future is, is uh, the possibilities are endless, endless for what we're doing, you know? You know, I wanted to uh, address Jeff Scott's question. Absolutely, positively, there are super giant super snows. Um, once again, yep. the giant gene is a genetic mutation. It has nothing to do with size necessarily. It's either present or not present, and there are absolutely certainly super giant super snows. If you if you can make a super giant snow, then there's no reason you can't make a super giant super snow. So that's my answer to Jeff. Mm-hmm. So you can basically put giant into any morph. It's just uh, taking the time to do it the right way and make sure you're not mixing albino strains, right? To my knowledge, there are no trait linkage issues with any other genes, um, to my knowledge. You know, I, perhaps I'm wrong, but um, I've certainly seen super giant super snows. So, um, <laughs> that, but, but I also know where he's coming from because the super snows, no matter what they are, always seem to grow a little slow. Um, sometimes really seem to grow slow. So, mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, cool. Well, well, it was a great uh, interview, Keith, absolutely. And uh, I just want to thank you once again for being with us, and you're welcome back anytime. Cool. Thanks, David. All right, see you online. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks a lot, Keith. Have a good night. You too. All right. Well, there you have it. How did we do tonight, Tim? I think it was a, another great show, Dave. Yeah, you know, it's really nice to uh, – we, we see these breeders online and Facebook and on their websites, but it's really nice to actually get to get a feel for who the people are and get to talk to them. And um, all you folks listening, we have about 15 people in the chat room. I just want to thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, we have Airway Geckos. We have Barbara Santor. We have Brooke uh, Polowski, the awesome uh, – Logo designer, we have Crystal Butcher, Elsa Borzoi, a bunch of guests. We have Gus Lang, Mike Rickett, Rachel Gratis, Sean Maloney, Josh Haggard. Uh, Tim, thank you so much for joining me tonight. And, uh, well, let's do it again soon, right? Well, uh, it'll be fun to uh, see you, and we'll talk in person next week. Yes, yes, at the White Plains show. Looking forward to it. Hope uh, Hope we have a great time and saw a bunch of geckos. Yep. All what right, uh cool. all right. You got any uh surprises for us coming out at the show? Any um cool projects that you haven't released too much of in the past? Um I, I'm gonna bring a couple geckos that I haven't shown uh on Facebook. I'm gonna bring some some cool things that are not for sale that I'm just gonna show off that I'll have for you know, upcoming season. Seasons of sorry. And uh but yeah, definitely some surprises and a lot of really uh, interesting mid to high range, uh, high end stuff this time. I also have some of the lower end geckos available too, so I'll have a little bit something for everybody. So, yeah, looking forward to it. All right, cool. So I think, uh, yeah. Anything else, Tim? Before we wrap it up? Uh, that's it. Again, just um, for any listeners that are uh, coming to the White Plains show, uh, make sure to stop by and see us. Absolutely. 
Awesome. All right, Tim, have a good night, and we'll do it again soon. See you next weekend. Same to you, Dave. Thanks. Later. Okay. All right, folks, there you have it. I'm going to go ahead and play the outro, come back with my closing remarks, and play a cool song. Hang tight. Gecko Nation Radio is a David Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. All right, folks, closing remarks are this. Uh, Tonight, I learned a lot about giant leopard geckos, and uh, I hope all of you took something away from that. I know a lot of uh, new hobbyists are really excited about giant leopard geckos and getting uh, something a little different than just the normal leopard gecko. This is going to be a great show for you guys to fall back on for that information on those special types. And uh, I also want to take the opportunity to, again, thank Keith Kiggins for not only sponsoring the show, but being a great guest tonight, and Tim for uh, co-hosting. And, of course, to all the listeners and fans of the show, you guys keep us rocking and rolling and uh, wouldn't be out here without you. So uh, keep helping us spread the word about Gecko Nation Radio. Share the Facebook page. Share the links in the posts if you would. Uh, that'll help us grow and reach more listeners. All right, awesome. Um, right now, before I play the song, I just want to go ahead and thank our sponsors one by one. I like to do that at the end of every show. Uh, Dale's Bearded Dragons has been with us since the beginning, and uh, they are the biggest and best reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Make sure you see them next week at the White Plains Show. Okay, I mentioned Gecko Nation Radio, and they're going to give you a discount on any kind of cages, supplements, heating, lighting that you need. Um, they're going to be at a few different spots during the show. Okay, so uh, make sure you stop by and say hello to them. And say hello to me. I'll be there. And, of course, Tim will be there. Um, Gecko Boa Reptiles. We talked about a little bit about John Scarborough tonight. He's working some incredible wild types and leopard gecko morphs and some uh, obscure, uh, rarely seen species as well. So check out geckoboa.com for some really cool geckos. ADDragons.com is your source for Juvia roaches. Make sure you use the code GECKO at checkout uh, for 5% off. Uh, Supreme Gecko, Wally Kern, the great breeder of crested geckos, day geckos, and micro geckos, little guys. Uh, it's got products for them as well. So check out SupremeGecko.com. OhioGecko.com. Thad Unkeffer also runs geckoforums.net 
check out Ohio Gecko. He'll probably be at White Plains next weekend as well, and he'll have a bright orange table. I guarantee it. A lot of orange tangerine geckos. So make sure you check out Ohio Gecko at the show and online. Uh, let's see. RainbowMealworms.net. Make sure you feed your geckos the very best and best-priced worms from RainbowMealworms.net, biggest worm farm in the world. ReptilesExpress.com. If you're shipping your animals anywhere in the U.S., make sure you use the best shipping company, which is Reptiles. Uh, of course, Ron Tremper. Nobody's been uh, a bigger contributor to leopard geckos than Ron Tremper. We all have Ron to thank he is our gecko godfather. So check out Ron Tremper at www.leopardgecko.com. And, of course, our guest tonight, Keith Kiggins, uh, has amazing giant leopard geckos and all different types of morphs uh, with leopard geckos and, of course, fat tails and crested too. So check out giantleopardgecko.com. He's got a blog there with some great information on his website, too. Uh, and if you are, of course, you are what you need, folks, make sure you're feeding your feeders the very best. Feed them MS2 Premium Chow. Okay, and last but not least, in our newest sponsor, Daryl Burton, Daryl and Kate Burton from Longhorn Geckos. Uh, if you're looking for very special high-end examples, uh, definitely check out Longhorn Geckos on Facebook. They're a new up-and-coming breeder, and uh, they'll have a website running soon. All right, I hope everybody's having a great holiday weekend. And to kind of stay with the holiday mood, I'm going to play a, I don't know, kind of like a festive song, I guess. It's, from, it's an oldie from the 80s, but it's a goodie. Check it out. Until next time, folks. Thanks a lot for uh, being great fans of the show. See you next week. Let the music